Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. On today's episode of The Game Podcast, we'll look back on a magical week in the Champions League quarterfinals. Is Jurgen Klopp to blame for Liverpool's poor defeat? Will Pep Guardiola overthink things once again? And we'll ask, are we entering a new era of English midfield dominance? The Times chief football writer Henry Winter will give us his view. We'll also look at the changing face of refereeing. I'm Hugh Wisencroft and this is The Game. To help us look back on a huge week in the Champions League, Gregor Robertson, James Restall and Jonathan Northcroft. How are you guys? Very well, yeah. Everyone pause there. Still, still, how many weeks into the season? You can't just say <laughs> hello straight away. You'll never get it. I don't know why. No. <laughs> <laughs> Let's begin by dissecting all four of the matches we've seen in the Champions League this week. We'll begin with one side of the draw before we move to the next. We'll start with the side including Chelsea and Liverpool. The winner of Porto against Chelsea will play Real Madrid or Liverpool next. Let's start with the game between Porto and Chelsea in Seville, I think. Thomas Tuchel's side, now firm favourites to go through, reminding us of 2012 when Chelsea won it but finished sixth in the Premier League. They looked a little bit disjointed, they were uninspiring, but they got the goals they needed and an all-important clean sheet as well. James, do you think Chelsea can win the Champions League playing like that? It reminded me last night of a brilliant, um, a brilliant stat that I think James Gearbrandt once wrote in a column that the team that wins the Champions League is usually the one with the best defensive record throughout the knockout stage. And I just thought, uh, you know, last Saturday accepted where they took a bit of a surprise battering by West Brom. Chelsea have largely been able to keep it tight under Thomas Tuchel and win by the odd goal. And, um, and their defensive record has been pretty sound. And last night, I thought it was it, it wasn't it wasn't a brilliant performance, but it was a very functional performance. They got the goals that mattered, and they got the result that bizarrely, even though it's in uh, in Seville, they've got two away goals. Um, which uh, I think a Chelsea fan friend texted me during the game last night and said, "Can we play in Seville every week?" Kai Havertz and Timo Werner started the game as well, and I think they're becoming. A serious issue for Chelsea, particularly Kai Havertz. What, £71 million was he? In my opinion, he's had two or three good games in a Chelsea shirt this season. Johnny, how do you think it pans out for him? Because it was another game the manager trusted him and another game fans were left wondering why. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's a, a almost a philosophical problem for Chelsea with Havertz and Werner, but Havertz in particular, which is they made a huge investment in a in a young player who's richly, richly talented, who's 21 years old and has potential to be one of the sort of you know future world stars. But clearly, he's finding his way at the moment, and he's even sort of trying to find find a position as he matures, and. This brings Chelsea to the, 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 the sort of point that they seem to have been at throughout the entire Bramwich era, which is do they invest in development and give somebody time, whether that's a manager or a player, or do they rush to, to sort of achieve things? Now, we're used to seeing that with young English players that have come through their academy. Now we're seeing it with a young player that they've, they've bought from the Bundesliga. I'm, I'm a massive Kai Havertz fan. I think he's 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 such a graceful, elegant player. He's he's Meza Ozil, but with 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 extras at his at his best. Um, and 
he's I can I totally understand why they they bought recruited him, and I completely understand why Thomas Tuchel's trying to find a place for him. The problem that they've got now, and this is this is where I come back to that that, that dilemma that they have, is in the final stages of the Champions League and they're trying to get into the top four. So do they park development until next season or do they try and use him now? Um, I didn't think he played badly, um, but I didn't think he offered that much threat either. And, you know, Giroud comes on the pitch and is a, an old hand at playing as a sort of point man number nine. And, and, and you know, in some ways the team makes more more sense. So it's a dilemma for them. Um I, w- I would, I, I, I would, I would, I was thinking about Havertz and I was thinking if Pep Guardiola had him, he would definitely have the same opinion as Tuchel as in, I've got to try and use this kid and develop him. And he probably would be looking at him as a false nine as well. It's just that I think he's managed to maintain a trick of, uh, of bringing players in and out a bit better than, than than anyone else has so far. You think that someone like Ferran Torres has been sort of well-developed over the, the year, but you can do that if you're Pep Guardiola and you've got all that um, sort of achievement behind you. So it's 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 a, it's a it's a real dilemma. Probably it makes sense to play Giroud for the second leg, but don't give up on Havertz at all. I think there's enough at Chelsea that he doesn't need to start their biggest games though. Pulisic on the bench, yeah. ZS on the bench, Olivier Giroud on the bench as well. You know, you can develop a player without playing him in your biggest game of the season. Yeah. Um, yeah. Gregor, do you think Chelsea should be back in the market this summer for a genuine goal scorer? Timo Werner doesn't seem at this point like he's going to be the answer. I know we've spoken about him before, but there are a number of players at Chelsea now who can play in those attacking roles. And it really is at the point where if you're not producing, you should really be somewhere else. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you, you, you've, as you said, that you've named a lot of players. They have, they have many options, Chelsea. And so it's just the fact that both of those two players are such a huge outlay on them and neither is really convinced, which makes it more of an issue than it really has to be, I think. You know, Vern- I read somewhere that Werner had fewer touches in 65 minutes on the pitch than Pulisic did in 25 minutes. Like, he's not... I personally think he's just as, pretty much just as just as disappointing as as Havertz. You know, he he registers assists, he's busy, he has pace, he threatens him threatens him behind, but you know that real kind of I don't know killer instinct. I'm not really not really seen it yet. I know, I'm you know he was obviously arrived with a brilliant reputation, scored a lot of goals. So again, these are two young guys who are, who who perhaps are going to take a little bit of time to acclimatise themselves. But yeah, I mean. Yeah, Abraham, I think, is still their top scorer in all competitions. He's not played in in a good good while. Um, Giroud, yeah, he's, you know, he's a, a a brilliant option to have. But you're probably right if 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 Chelsea are are kind of have ambitions of of uh, challenging for the league title again, then probably a real elite number nine might be on their shopping list. But they, look, we, as we've discussed before, they have so many options in an attacking sense, um, and I. I agree with James. I think the the biggest thing that that Tuchel has done is make them solid. And I've said it before that kind of five man base, Jorginho and, and Kovacic. He's got the balance that the previous two managers didn't. Lampard, Chelsea were wide open sometimes on the break. Somehow managed to leave. You know he misused Kante. So sorry beforehand misused Kante. Uh, Jorginho was like the fulcrum. You know there just seems to be a better balance, a bit more like Conte had. And I think that's the most important thing. I think that's 13 clean sheets in 16 games. You've got a chance. You're always going to have a chance with the kind of array of talent that they have. Although there could be doing more going forward, as we're saying, there are some aspects of their attack that are not really flowing perfectly. But when, you, when you're not conceding many goals, you've got a chance. I think um, with Mason Mount in the form that he's in at the moment for club and country, um, it's they still have that creative spark that can create something out of nothing. And... Um, I think the other the other point to touch on with Werner and Havertz, it, it's not helping them that um, they're, they're they're part of a really bad time for their national team as well. Uh, good news for England and Scotland in the summer, hopefully. Um, but the but um, but the fact that the fact that I think they are part of this narrative in Germany that they've kind of ditched older, experienced players and are are trying to bring in this new generation who aren't really impressing. Um, You'd think they could have caught a bit of a break during the international uh, window, but instead, Havertz and Werner are part of um, one of the worst defeats in the history of the German national team. And I think then you come back to your 
your club where you're under huge pressure to perform and deliver again. Um, they're not really getting it, it. It's a very hard uh, environment for them to develop in at the moment. It's an interesting one with Chelsea. I think they've got the possibility of of winning the Champions League. Really, Gregor, you point it out in terms of the defensive record. We're going to hear a little bit later on about Mason Mount and England's midfielders from Henry Winter. But up next, let's move to Liverpool. They put in... Well, they put in an entirely sloppy defensive performance. They were beaten 3-1 by Real Madrid in Spain. They did, though, get an important away goal to take back to Anfield. Uh, Jonathan, Trent Alexander-Arnold, he was praised after the win over Arsenal again in the Premier League at the weekend. Woeful against Madrid, frankly. Erzin Kabak, Nathaniel Phillips weren't much better at the heart of defence. Jurgen Klopp substituted Naby Keita after 41 minutes after his midfield pressing never really materialised as well. I've mentioned the players there, but there is part of me that wants to say so many things were wrong. You've really got to blame the manager. How did you see it? Yeah, I mean, b- b- before going to that point, I-, I have to take issue with Trent being woeful. I mean, he had a really woeful defensive moment and he had some wonderful moments in possession. And, and it was almost as if he, um, he'd he watched the-, the Monday night football debate and um, wanted to underline the points that both Carragher and-, and Neville made about him. You know, and he remains a real work in progress as a, as a player, but, um, y- you know, very gifted and, and 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 sort of flawed at the same time. Um, I think it is time to start looking at Klopp because Liverpool fans have have looked at everything else. Um, no fans, Van Dyke, you know, bad luck and so on. And these are all undoubted factors, huge factors. Um, but I, I, I've had a nagging feeling throughout the season that Klopp hasn't quite got this one right, and it goes back to. Um, it goes back to the Van Dyke injury, actually, and and quite how much um, he began making of, of injuries around about that time. And then he piled into the debate about the five substitutes, you know, in, in a way that other managers weren't. And I, I, I sort of felt if, if I was in the Liverpool squad and I hear my manager banging on about how he needs more substitutes and he's worried about the players, I'd start worrying about myself. It seemed it seemed that he was full of anxiety at that point and I couldn't quite understand why he was he was he was he was choosing to show it so much so I think he's had a I think he's had a funny season I don't think he's handled um the setbacks of the season particularly well and then you come to the the game against Real Madrid where after two good wins in the Premier League there was a chance for Liverpool to um to get some momentum going which they've struggled for for so long um and I think maybe an expectation that Real Madrid were a sort of a good team for them to be playing, a team that they could pick off. And I don't understand at all why he then tried to play the the the, the, the Naby Keita card. Nothing against Keita, but but when he had Thiago and and Fabinho working so well as a tandem, finally playing together and playing so well together, I didn't understand. Um, I didn't understand disrupting that. Keita didn't work. Apparently, he was asked to to, to dribble. Um, you know, get the ball and turn and dribble. Well, Real Madrid just kept playing the ball long and direct over Liverpool. You know, very good long passes from the likes of Tony Cruz, but uh, not allowing Liverpool the, the sort of possession in that in that kind of area in midfield. And they picked Liverpool off. And, and what's really worrying is that it was a pattern of Liverpool defeats. It probably goes back to Watford last year, where a team playing intelligently on the counter-attack, hitting the ball over their press uh, and getting at their back four achieved a lot of joy. And, and, and if we're thinking about questions about Klopp, then why over the last year is he still getting beaten in the same way? So, you know, you've always... Bigger picture, Klopp's incredible, brilliant manager, not questioning him, you know, in, in a fundamental way. But I think he's he's not dealt... He's, he's, he's four or five out of 10 at the moment for how he's dealt with this difficult season. He needs to find a way to stop getting beaten like this and he needs to get stability and maybe stop chasing answers and give that team a chance to, to get some momentum together. I don't see what is wrong knowing that you haven't got, you know, your first choice defence there with playing deeper and playing on the counter-attack, especially as you've got the likes of Mohamed Salah, Sadio Mane, you've got Diogo Jota in your squad. You know, a fundamental change in terms of just playing deeper and trying to break on teams from deep. 
that could work for a team as good as Liverpool. The quality they've got with the ball, players in midfield. Why, why, why do they have to play, Gregor, in the opposition's half all the time? That's a very valid, valid question. Although I have to say that having watched all these games in the last couple of days, the overwhelming kind of feeling you're left with is that that's still the the overriding, most the kind of dominant style of play. The, watching watching Bayern and Dortmund at their best, the way that they press, it's just relentless. And Liverpool are like several notches down from them now. Liverpool used to be on the same sort of level as that. Part of it is to do with the the centre halves and not having probably not having quite the same level of confidence in leaving two people to deal with everything basically and to mop up any problems at the back you've got to have some top level defenders to be able to do that and Liverpool don't have them just now but I also think that Zidane deserves a lot of credit for the way that he kind of found what he what he believed was going to be the biggest weakness and and uh, took advantage of it and it clearly targeted the space in behind Trent Alexander-Arnold and that's not to say that he's thinking he can't defend I think it's just to say that he knows he's going to be joining in every attack possible and he left them with a dilemma with Mendy overlapping and Vinicius Jr. kind of tucking inside and it's like uh, being there myself as a fullback it's very difficult You've, you want to you want to cover your your, your centre half first and foremost but if the ball keeps getting played wide you've got to be the man to get out, to get out there as well so that you know that ultimately got them their first two goals so well, Liverpool, Liverpool's press is just nothing like it, it was. And I think there are several reasons for that. But um, primarily, Liverpool fans also must be sick to death of hearing about Van Dijk losing Van Dijk and losing <laughs> Gomez and Matip. They must be. But it is at the root of most of Liverpool's problems. And yes, Klopp has not dealt with it well. The club has not dealt with it well in terms of the way that they recruited players in January or were prepared for it. Again, you've got to look at Madrid. They were without Ramos, Dani Carvajal and Varane went down with COVID. And yeah, so there's three of their back four as well. So it's not really that much of an excuse when you're talking about these are supposed to be elite level Champions League clubs. Liverpool have not dealt with this well in the Premier League, never mind the Champions League. Jonathan, there'll be no crowd at Anfield, but a 2-0 win for Liverpool could see them through, you know, an improbable 4-1 could be on the cards as well. Do you, do you see Liverpool possibly going through to the semi-finals? Yes, it's it's it's, it's not impossible, of course. Um, especially if they they get the the fabled early goal, and they only need one to to get through. And um, that game suited Real Madrid. But if Liverpool don't play into their hands this time, if Liverpool are able to to just play a bit smarter and and maybe muster the kind of I know we go back to intensity, but they did manage a period at the start of the second half where they were playing the game in the areas they wanted to play high up the pitch. If they can do that, I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not convinced by Real Madrid either. It was, it was a golden night for Tony Kroos and 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 Luka Modric, but these guys are are getting on, and you know, are they gonna are they gonna be able to do that? And it's a big run of fixtures for Madrid at the moment. Are they gonna be able to do that at Anfield next week? So that there are, there's enough in that tie. That I know a lot of people are saying, "Oh, Liverpool are done." I don't. I don't think they're done. I think they are capable of 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 getting through. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't bet on it just because of the lack of consistency we've been talking about. The the, the the way that that they haven't handled things particularly well. But you know, a Liverpool on form, and they've got to forget about the crowd. Yeah, there's no crowd. There's gonna be no Anfield factor. We know that it's done. Just focus on what they can do at Madrid. Can we just take a moment to appreciate Cruz's pass, though, for? Oh. For that first goal, my God! And he, when you saw it from the angle, kind of facing him, and he just like he's just <laughs> kind of paused there, looking like a golfer, so elegantly after striking it. Like, he's just a Rolls Royce of a footballer, isn't he? Loved it. What a play. Let's be honest, though, a, a caddy stands closer to a golfer than the Liverpool players were. I mean, all the replays, there was no one else in the shot. You could see the goalkeeper in the background, Thibaut Courtois, watching on fondly, and that was it. So, look, if you give players of that quality time, like a say you will get her and we all know what a great player Tony Kroos is. Uh, we'll see if Liverpool can do the job next week. They will have to rely on Anfield to be a fortress without their fans, of course, to cheer them on. Let's head to the other side of the draw next where Manchester City or Borussia Dortmund will face Bayern Munich or Paris Saint-Germain. Let's start with Manchester City's 2-1 win 
over Borussia Dortmund at the Etihad Stadium. James Sterling and Jesus were on the bench. Bernardo Silva played as a false nine. Dortmund were solid. They were resolute in the game. They should really have scored more as well. A young side, though, sitting sixth in the Bundesliga at the moment, maybe shouldn't have been expected to do as well as they did. Do you think Pep Guardiola was trying to be too clever once again with his lineup? I did fear it when I looked at the starting lineup. I thought, oh God, here we go again. Um, but I think where this is a brilliant result is uh, if you've looked at the numbers for away wins versus home wins this season, for the first time ever, away wins are ahead of home wins at this stage in the season. So the fact that, that Manchester United, uh, sorry, Manchester City have managed to get away without losing at home, um, they're, they're, they're going to Dortmund uh, in, a, in a hugely advantageous position, I think. Um, and they're certainly more solid defensively than at any time before uh, in at this stage of the Champions League. Um, I, I think I think they did. They they were incredibly fortunate not to not to concede twice. I mean the the Jude Bellingham goal. It was an absolute aberration that that was disallowed. Um, and uh, my my biggest takeaway from that match was just how impressive um, Jude Bellingham was. I mean it was. It was quite. It was. It was quite a majestic performance for someone of his age um, and experience. And it's kind of. It's one thing, you know. I think for the for 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 a large number of of of, of English fans who probably maybe might not have watched him at Birmingham City too frequently, their first proper glimpse of him will have been uh, that game against San Marino, um, and not really a proper test. Um, Manchester City at the Etihad's quite a different prospect. And my goodness. Um, Owen Hargreaves was saying in commentary that he should be starting for England at the Euros. Uh, I think he's certainly got to be in that squad. He's another Jordan Henderson. He's another box-to-box midfielder, high energy. Uh, he's one of the most exciting players I think I've I've seen seen England produce. And I mean, Henry's Henry's talked on here about the wealth of talent in England's midfield, but. My goodness, it's uh, it'll be hugely exciting to see him at the Euros this summer. Absolutely. It's still a wonder to watch him and think he's 17 years old. I mean, it is. It is. It's absolutely astonishing. We're going to hear a little bit more about Jude Bellingham from Henry Winter later on. Um, let's move to one of his teammates, though, Gregor. It was billed as Erling Haaland's audition for a place in, in maybe Manchester City's starting lineup next week. Do you think Pep Guarda would have viewed him, saw that performance and thought we need to have him next season? Not based on that performance, but I mean, I think he's well aware of what what he's able to do, and that's kind of that actually isn't that unfamiliar for, for him. He, he rarely gets involved in much in build-up play. He kind of has very few touches compared to some of his counterparts, you know, leading strikers in Europe. But then you saw the kind of the flash, the moment where he's played through, and he's got that blistering speed, and he shrugs off Diaz, and it was you know when you saw the replays of that, I think he would have scored it. Diaz, as he fell, his stud kind of caught him on the back of his his calf, and that made him stumble. I think otherwise that would have been a goal. Um, you know, you, you just see that, that all he needs is that one second. Um, so, you know, it wasn't his, it was he wasn't like a standout performer. I don't think Bellingham stole the show really. I, I was I was impressed with Dortmund though the way they kind of. The way they played out really calmly through Manchester City's press as well, um, Dahoud as well. He, I mean, he was he was outstanding. The way he kind of he can spin away from a player in midfield and, and drive forward. Um, so yeah, I thought I, I, I don't think this is kind of game over in this tie at all. I think this yes, Dortmund are struggling a little bit in the Bundesliga, but young, full of energy, full of kind of confidence and belief in the, as I say in the way that they they're willing to play to, to risk playing through Manchester City and they can create chances so as James has said already it was an absolute nonsense that Bellingham didn't get that goal Did an official ever ask you for an autograph after a game Gregor? (laughs) (laughs) Many I've lost count of the number of times (laughs) Honestly that was a pretty bad night for for, for the officials wasn't it? What on earth He saw a kind of I think Henry in his match report said that you know the first the chance penalty or Supposed penalty, I think he said it wouldn't have been like a hobbit's kick or something. It wasn't high enough, <laughs> and then <laughs> and then the the Bellingham one, and then afterwards that, yeah, you think what what are we doing? This is the elite elite kind of creme de la creme of world football, and we've got these <laughs> I don't know someone who's who's out for autographs and a pretty incompetent looking referee in the middle. Not a good <laughs> night. 
Well, the thing is, Octavian Sovra, the, the official that asked for an autograph for, on his red and yellow card, apparently has given them away to an autism charity and that's why he wanted them. But there is still part of me that thinks an official shouldn't be doing that. I know everyone's saying, oh, look, it's for charity. There you go. Anyone that said bad words about him, you know, you were wrong. But for me, if I'm an opponent and, and next time Erling Haaland's playing, he's the referee, I'm thinking... Well, he, he likes Ireland. He's going to favour him because he's done him a favour in the past. That's the sort of thing that I still don't think at the elite level of football needs to be done. I think if you've got connections, get in touch with Dortmund. They'll send you a signed shirt. We know charity stuff happens, you know, away from the pitch. But in the tunnel at the Etihad Stadium, I just don't think it was appropriate. But, but that's just me, not to labour on the point. Um, Jonathan, I'll come to you next because there, there are reports this week that Dortmund used none other than Manchester United's and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's tactics in their win over City last month to help with their approach, once again proving the tactical genius of the Norwegian. <laughs> That's right here. As, as you and I can agree, there's no finer <laughs> blueprint for success to follow than Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's. I, I, I warm my heart to read that. And of course, it makes perfect sense because... Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is the only manager to get the better of Pep Guardiola in the last, what, 29 games now. Um, I thought it was, it was really interesting. There's so much that's smart about Dortmund from, you know, recruitment to uh, the, the the way the club's structured to to, to some of the, th- the decisions they make in hiring coaches. And, and that was another example of, of a club that's, that's sort of quite agile in its in its thinking. And one of my big takeaways from, from this week, I, I, I all four ties were, were, were brilliant, I thought. And and the City one in particular had a had a, a fact that you don't see in the Premier League much. You, see, you, you saw City being tested and sort of poked by a, a, a team they didn't know quite so well, that, that weren't as frightened of them as, as other sides, um, that had some really fresh players that, 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 that you know, that, that the debutant up front that the City didn't quite know, wouldn't have planned for. And... You know, it just got me thinking. It was it was another reason to hate the idea of that European Super League or the expanded Champions League because it's at this stage of the competition that we see jeopardy. We see knockout games where a great team like City can go out if they get it wrong over two legs, and we see the the, the benefit of of you know teams that aren't as not being over familiar with each other, not being kowtowed by playing. City in a league where City are 37 points ahead of them and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, this is the best stage of the Champions League by a mile. We need more of this. We need more of these knockout games. We need more of the freshness that that, 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 that Dortmund brought to it, for example. But, you know, I, I know we'll, we'll probably speak about PSG and Bayern as well. Great Bayern side just bang, undone by, um, by you know, by a, a bad sort of first 20, 30 minutes. And, and they're, 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 that, that's what we like. It's a jeopardy. Um but going, going back to Dortmund, um, it, it was interesting. You know, I'd been at the Leicester game at the weekend. It was just interesting how a team that's lost ten games in the Bundesliga and is, you know, without a, a permanent manager at the moment and supposedly in flux, could trouble City far more than arguably the Premier League's second best team, i.e. Leicester on 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 Saturday. And and, and I love that juxtaposition. I don't think that means that Dortmund are better than Leicester. But as I say, it just meant that that there's something magic about this knockout format and and and, and about the the jeopardy, as I say, of the Champions League as it stands. Please keep it. Please let's not turn this into another league where the strongest always prevail. Well, the strongest might still prevail, even <laughs> as we have it, and um, and that change the, the the Champions League is probably still going to come. So it's probably bad news on both parts for you, Johnny. I can only apologise. And um, let's go to the final quarter final, though a stunning tie at the Allianz Arena, a repeat of last year's final, of course. Finished Bayern Munich two, Paris Saint Germain three. Uh, Bayern had thirty one shots in the game compared to six for PSG. The Germans desperately missed their injured strike. Robert Lewandowski. I reckon he would have had five or six on the night, to be perfectly honest, James, had he played. His absence might ultimately be the difference in this tie. What do you think? That and the absence of Serge Gnabry as well, um, because they they lost the they lost sort of one threat who is their ultimate goal scorer and finisher, and another who would have maybe been able to get in behind more and, and finish chances. I think it's a, it was a big ask to expect Eric Maxim Schupo-Moting um, 
last seen as a bit part player with PSG and getting relegated with Stoke to um, be the difference in a Champions League tie. Um, did get a goal, of course, um, and it was quite a good one. But um, I think over two over two legs, um, when you're comparing that with a side that can boast Neymar and Mbappe, I think it's a bit of a mismatch. Someone who seems to have the talent and the fire in their belly is Kylian Mbappe. Played through the middle, scored twice, showed all of his potential suitors what he might be like as a central striker. Um, after the game, PSG sporting director Leonardo said he's confident there will be new contracts for both Mbappe and Neymar. But Gregor, I got a lot of pushback for suggesting that Kylian Mbappe is basically wasting his time at PSG. Um, I, I think it's all a bit too comfortable. Maybe that's sort of reminiscent of what we mean about Leroy Sane. You know, it's, you know, the place that you were born, the best team in, in your league should walk the title every year, although they're, they're probably not going to this year. Um, and everyone says, oh, if he wins the Champions League, he should leave. Well, that's a big if for me when it comes to Paris Saint-Germain. I think if he's got the opportunity to go, now's the time. Yeah, look, I can understand that point of view, but he doesn't strike you as someone, despite the club he's playing for, who is who thinks he's wasting his time. <laughs> Every time he steps on the pitch, he's got that hunger and that, that kind of bite and that drive. He has that, there's no doubt about it. And yes, you're right, he's kind of, PSG have often been in the comfort zone in, in Liga, although that's not the case this season. Um, but they are getting closer to kind of challenging for the, for the Champions League. And he's 22. So, you know, there's a lot of time uh, ahead of him and, you know, can't wait to see what, what comes of that and where he, where he might end up. But, but P- I thought PSG were, yeah, they kind of hung on and, you know, defended manfully, but they were always a, they were always a threat and Mbappe could have had a hat-trick or more. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, it's impossible to call in the second leg. That was a wild game. It was brilliant. It was like, you know, as, as true as, as much as I was nodding along to everything Johnny was saying about the Champions League and don't ruin it, it's, it's seeing these two teams go head to head that makes everyone want, some people within the game want to see this happen more often because it was just a thrilling seesawing kind of end to end game. But as Johnny says, it's the jeopardy that makes that. So yeah, I'm firmly in the same camp as him. But what a game. Absolutely brilliant game. And the kind of, in the sort of, the strange snow falling and stuff, it all made it seem a bit ethereal and it's kind of a sort of otherworldly game. And, it, you know, empty stands, empty backdrop, but absolute fire and fury on the pitch. What a game. It, it's why it's great as well that um, these two teams who, you know, many people might say are the two favourites and for the final get to play each other at this stage because you do see them having to throw caution to the wind a bit if this game was the final it might be a bit more cagey it might be a bit more of a tactical battle teams not wanting to put too much on the line um I mean it's amazing because looking at these you know Johnny you were saying how brilliant these these first leg games have been how often have we seen first legs that are really tight cautious affairs Uh, I, I I sort of think the fact that fans aren't in the stadiums is kind of Made the has, has taken a bit of the pressure off, and we've had what well, we had a three-two, a three-one, a two-one, and a two-nil. Those are quite unusual first-leg scores generally, um, and I think yeah, it, it's 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 been you know it, it sort of sets it up brilliantly for next week. A cracking first legs should be a brilliant second leg in all of the ties in the Champions League quarterfinals, and I'm sure we'll be reflecting on those in a week's time. Up next, we're going to talk a little bit about some of England's great young midfielders who performed admirably in this week's uh, Champions League quarterfinals. But remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, rate us, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from and make sure you're subscribed for more of our award-winning journalism. Get yourself a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times and you can get it across all of your devices as well. Sign up today, you'll get one month free. Go online, search thetimes.co.uk for Slash the game to get yourself started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Well, this week in the Champions League has provided us with a glimpse into a potentially magnificent future when it comes to England's midfield. I caught up with the Times Chief Football Writer Henry Winter to cast an eye over some of our young, prodigious talents. Henry, let's start with Jude Bellingham, the 17-year-old playing for Borussia Dortmund right now. I know so many fans, particularly of Manchester United, disappointed after they saw his performance this week that they missed out on that signing. He's got a huge future ahead of him. Just quickly, you saw the game at the Etihad. What did you make of how he played? So mature, denied uh, a very good goal with his opportunism, nicking the ball away from Edison, the city goalkeeper, going through and scoring, and then a ridiculous bit of uh, refereeing, probably the worst refereeing performance I've seen in Europe for about 10 years, going back to Alvaro Burt, Chelsea. Um, I thought he was mature throughout. But, I mean, look, we've seen that with England. We've seen that with performances going back to, to Birmingham. He's very grounded. His dad was a very good uh, local non-league player. And there's just sort of control. It's probably too strong a word because Bellingham himself, Jude, is is obviously a very sort of mature, independent individual. But just one thing that the cameras wouldn't have picked up on because they stopped filming by then. But I was sitting in the ground just about to leave and I noticed that Bellingham had done a couple of interviews uh, for German television, for English television. And then he was just, he had a quick chat with Foden. And I think he was waiting. I don't know whether his father was there or whether he was waiting for someone from um, Dortmund to sort of take him back inside. But he he just sat, he was just, sorry, he was just standing there near the tunnel, just talking to a steward. And it was one of those, you know, that was my son. You thought, well, good for him because there was eye contact. There was, you know, obviously socially distanced and all that. But I just thought it was a very sort of mature, grounded. There was no big I am about him. Um, so very mature on the pitch, very mature off the pitch. And as you say, a huge future. I am, by the way, one of those disappointed Manchester United fans. Uh, Jude Bellingham, currently on the fringes of the England squad for the European Championship this summer. Do you think the manager, Gareth Southgate, needs to take him in his 23? I think it could be a 25. And I think that's what Southgate may, that might help Southgate. Because uh, you wait for, you know, there's pressure. Martinez and Southgate and coaches of that standing have spoken spoken with UEFA about maybe the need to expand squads because of COVID uh, and also because we know that there are going to be a lot of injuries towards the end of the season because players haven't had a pre-season it's been a crazy hectic season uh, so that, sadly there will be a lot of injuries going into the tournament so 25 makes sense that gives almost two wild cards for, uh, for Southgate to go for who do you then leave out if you are going to go for a 23 do you leave out a Ward-Prowse um, I mean Bellingham is clearly the future, and this is not a Theo Walcott 2006 scenario. This is an established, pretty much an established Champions League, Bundesliga talent now. So uh, I'd like to see him go. But, you know, last time I, I tried to pick my squad, I got to 42. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible at the moment how many great players might miss out on the England squad this summer. Uh, one player who I think is sure to be in it, though, is Chelsea's Mason Mount. He impressed in the win over Porto, got a goal as well. But in terms of that England squad, do you think Mason Mount is now making himself irresistible and ahead of the likes of Jack Grealish and Jordan Henderson? Uh, two completely different players. Um, he's certainly way ahead of uh, Grealish. Uh, Henderson, if Henderson's fully fit and given Southgate's cautious nature, uh, Southgate, say he goes a 4-3-3, it will be Rice, touch wood, he's fit. Uh, it looks like he will be. And Henderson in midfield, an A and other. 
Uh, Mason Mount will be in that starting lineup. I think there are probably seven undroppables in Southgate's eyes at the moment, and Mount's one of those. We've seen him, you know, he got left out for the Wolves game when Tuchel came in, and Tuchel realised pretty quickly that Mount was uh, not only Chelsea's future, but Chelsea's present. And, it, you know, you saw last night, I was covering the game off television because we're, we're not able to travel abroad at the moment. And Mount, Mount was just outstanding as was Ben Chilwell, as was Rhys James as well. So, I mean, Southgate's actually had probably quite an enjoyable week watching the football. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Mount Mount definitely starts. Phil Foden as well, just to take you back to the Etihad, is another player that I think many, many England fans are just excited to see. Um, but he's another one, I guess, who has a question mark over himself for a place in the Euro squad. But he is showing us more and more why he's so highly regarded, his confidence is growing as well. Do you believe he should be starting more often for his club, Manchester City? Well, first, there's no question that he will be in Southgate squad, even if it's 23. I think even if it was 18, Foden would be in there. He's, I mean, you know, in English football at the moment, there are four great young talents. Uh, you would include, I mean, arguably five, you could include Bellingham in there. You know, I mean, Foden's certainly in there. I mean, look, even your dog wants to join in because everyone's <laughs> so excited about Foden at the moment. Um, look, he's he's just, he's a fantastic talent. He's been handled brilliantly by uh, Pep Guardiola in terms of uh, uh, not sending him out on loan, allowing him to work and learn and develop alongside David Silva, who's now moved on. Foden is effectively his replacement. He's seen the professionalism of Kevin De Bruyne, Raheem Sterling, how Raheem Sterling has handled the media, the outside world. Foden's learned so much. And what I particularly liked is the, uh, well, first, he, you know, the, his involvement, the pre-assisters, the, the love is call, his, his involvement in, in De Bruyne's goal, Tamares to De Bruyne uh, for City's first. But the way he took the, uh, the, the second, I've just thought it was just a fantastic, I mean, it's a lovely sort of layoff from Barres and it was, a, it was a terrific finish. But sorry, from Gundogan to, uh, to, to Foden for finish. But what I liked about him is he didn't celebrate. He just, there was a recognition, maybe I should have taken some of the chances uh, so slightly early, had a couple of good chances, but I just thought it was just, but, you know, let's get on with the game. This, we're Manchester City, I'm Phil Foden, this is what we should be doing. We should be beating Dortmund, we should be progressing to the later stages of the Champions League. So I liked that sort of cold glint in his eye after after scoring. And again, there were some nice moments afterwards, a little bit like Bellingham. You saw Foden having a chat with Haaland as well. I don't think he was tapping him up. I just think it was two young players who probably play each other on on FIFA, who who just have huge respect for each other, who know the next ten years belongs to them. And I just thought that I thought that was very nice. And there was a nice exchange between Bellingham and Foden, who obviously know each other from the uh, from the England camp. So look, I think the question with Foden, I think Foden and Mount both start against Croatia on June the thirteenth uh, as the Euros start. I think the issue with Foden uh, for Southgate is does he start because he's obviously going to start Kane and Sterling who is then going to be his other wide player is it going to be Rashford is it going to be Foden I think Foden's two completely different players if you've got space to run in behind you play Rashford if it's a really tight defence you've got Foden who can un- who can unlock defences yeah still a great prospect for, for England fans just on the point of Haaland I know you just mentioned him we spoke about him a little bit earlier on in terms of his audition but um, do, you, do you believe that Manchester City have to go for him I know Pep Guardiola has been making noises about their inability to afford a player for that much money yeah but I mean that's press conferences I mean that's just managers say that that's mind games if he wants Holland, there's clearly a, a space for him there you just saw it, it wasn't one of his better games but I just thought there were moments and it, it's funny just seeing watching him in the flesh being in the Etihad and you just see him he's got a slightly ungainly run with his shoulders slightly far forward. He almost looks like a sort of waiter who's sort of rushing to a table with sort of drinks that are late. And he knows that the sort of, you know, the uh, the people around the table are impatient for him. And he almost looks like he's going to fall out. But I, wow, he covers that ground so quickly with the ball, without the ball, his movement off balance. He should have had a penalty. You know, I just thought he was outstanding through, uh, through throughout. I mean, the way he, I mean, the, the footballer of the year is clearly Ruben Diaz in, in English football at the moment. Um, the votes are sort of going in at the moment from the PFA and the FWA uh, and he he just Holland just turned Ruben Diaz and got away from him and, and bowled him over I just think he's a, he's a fabulous talent he would Barcelona and Real Madrid 
will be in for him. Everyone says they haven't got the money. They'll find the money for him. Um, Manchester United absolutely crying out for a number nine of his uh, consistency and quality. Um, but I just think Manchester City, you could just see him slotting in there. The younger players, that work ethic, he knows and Raiola knows that he will develop hugely under Pep Guardiola as well. So there's always an issue with of young players coming to English football because they know that because of the grind of English football, it might exhaust them for, for summer tournaments. But I think Haaland just got such confidence he could come. If he came to English football, he'd absolutely tear it up. He'd be brilliant. Just finally, I think if you add Declan Rice to that, that three English midfielders who we mentioned, Bellingham, Mount and Foden as well. Do you think we've got a golden generation? I think I'm the first person to say it about these lot coming up in the uh, in the not too distant future. One that might surpass the likes of Gerard Lampard, Scholes and Beckham. I mean, having written a book on English football and interviewed Gerard and Lampard for the book and asked them about the golden generation and seen the, the scornful, slightly haunted look in their eye when you mentioned golden generation. I don't think anyone will be using uh, that phrase too soon. I think that the hubris from 2006 onwards uh, highlighted that. I think we're very fortunate and, and credit to the academies and also credit to, to, to the parents and coaches and the grassroots clubs who've helped these young players on their way and their coaches currently, but also ultimately to the individuals themselves. I mean, if you look at them, they are, and you look at Greenwood as well, I know he's not a midfielder, but clearly he's going to be an England centre forward in years to come. I think England have got some exceptional young talent, but we've said this before, we've had generations before. Southgate played in arguably in a better team, in a better squad, um, with a better coach in 96. And under Terry Venables only got to the, the semi-finals. So I, I just think there's a, there's, a, there's a huge concentration and focus and dedication around this squad. But I think they all know they've got a long way to go before actually comparing themselves with the French squad at the moment, with the Belgian squad at the moment, with the re-emerging Spanish squad. So, uh, but look, there's a lot of foot on the ball, but, you know, they're good on the ball. My thanks to Henry Winter, the Times Chief Football Writer there, uh, looking ahead to, I guess, a, a great week in the Champions League, but also, of course, high expectations for the European Championships this summer. Uh, up next, still plenty to come on the Game Podcast. We'll be talking about the changing face of refereeing and some of the worst understudies in football history. Let's talk refereeing. It's been huge this week, not just for autographs in the tunnel, but history being made. Rebecca Welsh uh, has become the first female referee to officiate an English Football League match as she oversaw Port Vale's win at Harrogate in League Two at the weekend. Sonny and Bapinda Gill will become the first South Asian brothers appointed to an EFL game as well. They're both Sikh, the sons of a former EFL referee as well. Jonathan Northcroft, it is important, I think, that refereeing takes a step forward in England. And as I say, that we see more representation. Absolutely. I mean, for, for me, it's one of the um, kind of overlooked parts of the whole um, conversation about um, the need to modernise and, and, and have more diversity in, in football. You know, we, we talk about lack of representation in, in boardrooms or in the dugout. But I mean, for me, it's glaring the... the um, the sort of monochrome, you know, um, nature of, 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 of refereeing. Um, I did a piece about this a couple of years ago, and at that point, it had been 11 years since Uriah Rennie had, had, had refereed in the Premier League, the last black referee to referee in the Premier League. And I think until Sam Allison this year, the last black referee to referee in the Football League as well. Um, at that point, um, you know, in, in terms of, of, of women, Shan Massey's been, been a sort of pioneer and, and, and respected for a long time, but but it seemed that England were a long way behind, let's say France, who have Stephanie Frappard, who who's refereed in the Champions League and in in Ligue 1. Um, I, I think I think as these two stories show, there is a the, a change is now starting to to come. Um, there's still a huge way to go before um, there's anything like representation in, in refereeing and and and, and officially but but you know why, why is that important well it's important because if like 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 ev like everything else about diversity it's just important that um it represents um society and it represents what what we see in terms of the playing staff if if you know 33 percent of of players in the premier league are, are bame then 
you know, and there, and there hasn't been a black referee for 11 years, there's, there's, there's a big problem. And if there are female officials of the quality that, that we've seen from Sean Massey for so many years and, and Rebecca Welsh's debut went very well, she was praised by both managers, then, you know, what's what's the barrier? What, what, what you know, what, why, why, why aren't we seeing more more women um, in these positions and catching up with with France and Frappa. So it, it's great to see that there's a change there's a change coming. And you know what what's been what was clear from Rebecca Welsh's performance is that in terms of of merit and quality, she absolutely 100 percent deserves to be there. It's important to break down barriers as well, Gregor. From a from a player's point of view. You probably haven't had a female referee in your time in the football leagues, but um, do you think it would have been an issue for, for players? Not at all, no. I mean, I also, almost, almost found it kind of, I don't know, the reporting of it and stuff, you know, they, you saw the two managers kind of asked about the referee's performance afterwards and it was like, she's on that stage for a reason. I know it's the first time and it's a story, but even the fact that they're kind of asked to analyse her performance, was, I found a little bit strange. So, no, not in the slightest. You know, it would be something that would be probably be spoken about and discussed in the in the early you know, the first time it happened and and if it was something new, but not in the slightest, it just all boiled down to performance. So um and as you know, as 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 everyone said that she she performed performed very well in that game and there's no reason to expect it to be any different. A few years ago I met and interviewed a guy called Ryan Atkin, who is he's the first openly gay referee in the football league. What really struck me about his story was he he said that it was it was Around 2015, when he was, I think he was, when he was working in um, working as a linesman in the football league, he w- he was saying that he not being able to be himself among his colleagues. I think he'd come out to family and friends, but not being able to be himself among his colleagues had it was impacting on his professional and professional life. And he w- and he was saying it was making him referee badly um, because of the the, the internal pressure. Um, you know, it's 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 a very it's a very common thing with LGBT people who who can't who don't feel like they can be open. It, it does. You do feel like it weighs on your mind and it weighs on your shoulders, and you can't you can't be the best person that you can be. Since coming out to his colleagues and then publicly a few years ago um, to the wider football world, he'd been demoted as a referee. He's now come back up. He's now on an upward trajectory, and he's really enjoying what he does. And it's incredibly brave and bold to be a referee generally, given the abuse, as you said, Hugh, that referees are subjected to. It's an incredibly tough, uh, it's an incredibly tough job. I've had a very, very limited experience of, of, of running the line. I did it for about half a season in my when I was a lot younger for my brother's grassroots team. And I stopped because I couldn't, I didn't like the abuse from the parents that I was getting generally. I thought it's just not worth my time. So the people who stick at this make a career out of it. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. And I think it's even more powerful when people like Rebecca Welsh get promotions and are trailblazers and people like Ryan Atkin, because it just shows that this job can be done and, and it, shows that it's, it shows that it's open for everyone. Before we go on the game podcast, I wanted to have a little bit of fun. We mentioned him already, Eric Maxim Chupu Moting. So many people tweeting and reacting during the game. Of course, the understudy to Robert Lewandowski, the former PSG, former Stokes City man as well. Not really, no fault of his own at the quality of the player who, of course, was missing due to injury. But it got us thinking about understudies in football. The player that you've had at your team, who's just absolutely incredible and who might come off the bench for them if they get injured or have to have a long run in the team and how you dread, absolutely dread that moment. Um, James, let's start with you. Worst understudy you can remember? It's a bit of a personal one. I could go more general and I could say uh, I could say some obvious ones, but um, it ta- it, when, when, when you asked me this question, uh, when I was asked this question in the build-up to the podcast, my mind immediately went to a goalkeeper called Paul Rachubka, one-time Manchester United goalkeeper. I think he played once for them in the Premier League and he made a substitute appearance in that kind of ill-fated Club World Championship in Brazil back in about 2000. Um, didn't make the grade at Manchester United, played for, I think, 18 clubs in his career. He's retired now. Uh, and it took me back to the 2011-12 season, which I remember as a Leighton Orient fan as the season of seven goalkeepers, where we had se- where we genuinely fielded seven different goalkeepers in the season due to various injuries, etc. Um, Paul Rashabka was number seven. Um, 
he'd been at Leeds earlier in the season. They were going well in the championship. Their goalkeeper got injured. He comes in, has an absolute nightmare for, uh, five games. I think Leeds fans still talk about it now as kind of it completely derailed their season. He played in a, in a, in a game at home against Blackpool, conceded three goals in the first half all due to sort of calamitous errors that were just like, just completely comedic. And he ends up getting subbed off at halftime and never plays for Leeds again. So you can imagine my horror after six, after after fielding six different goalkeepers in a season, um, when I'm on my way to go and watch my team play at Wickham Wanderers, where both teams are in the relegation zone or, or fighting relegation. And I see that on the way to the game, our goalkeeper Marek Steck, number six, has been in, has got injured, and we've signed Paul Rashubka on an emergency loan. And you know it, it was inevitable what happened. Uh, long ball comes into the box. He completely flaps at it in the sixth minute. Goal goes in, four nil down at half time. Uh, and um, I, I, I had to sort of go back to the BBC website to re- remind myself of the game um, before before this that they actually, you know, we we we, won, we lost four two, and they credited us with a spirited fight back. But that's not how I remember it. I just remember just one of the worst understudy goalkeepers that I can I've ever seen. <laughs> and and I think it's probably harsh on him because you know he must have been incredibly low on confidence after his sort of exit from Leeds, and then gets thrust into a team at the last minute, um, you know, doesn't know anyone in the back four, hasn't had a, hasn't had a training session. But I mean, it was just, it's it's still, you know, 10 years on, scarred on my memory. Gregor, what about you? <laughs> that just made me think of one, actually, the, <laughs> the guy I played with. Because uh, goalkeepers are always in a, a bit of a, you know, the understudies never, doesn't always fill you with confidence. It's rare if you've got two, like Man United just now, for instance, you've got mm. two goalkeepers, I think, who's the number one. Uh, and he's a good good pal of mine too, so I probably shouldn't be saying this, but yeah, Barry Roach, a guy who plays for he's played for Morecambe for a long time, but um, I played him at Nottingham Forest, and I think I think Paul Gerrard, remember former Everton goalkeeper, mm-hmm. he was he was our number one at Forest at the time, but he was injured, and we played Derby County in a obviously a, a big game big at Derby match, there, yeah. and uh, it was at Pride Park, and the ball was rolled back to him on it was a windy day, and on on onto the pitch blew a, a coffee cup. And the ball bounced up off the coffee cup as he was about to strike it, and he shanked it straight to Paul Pescalido, and he stuck it into the empty net. Oh, no. and after that, he was referred to as the Kenko kid for the whole of the rest of his <laughs> forest career. So, you know, he was a very good goalkeeper too. He had a brilliant career. I'd, in fact, I did a piece last year when he retired. Um, you know, someone who had like a stalwart of the EFL, one of the best goalkeeper, world league goalkeepers. But his time at Forest was forever scarred by that that incident. Um, I was actually before that. I was gonna, I was gonna drop in. Uh, seeing, seeing as Alison's not here, I was gonna drop in Olivier Giroud, but I, I probably better not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just leave that there. Johnny, what what do you think? I think it's no coincidence that you kind of think of goalkeepers and strikers when you think of this debate because it's those specialist positions where it's just impossible to, to uh, you know shuffle the team around to accommodate a substitution it's got to be a, a good like for like of course you think of Spurs and their attempts to replace Harry Kane off the bench and Leicester went through a funny old period after winning the league where um, Ajoa went and, and you know they were trying Ahmed Musa or Slomani as a Jamie Vardy sub that didn't work but the, I think the one for me that that, that, that that I will always remember was being at Euro 2004 being at England v Portugal and England being, you know, on fire, one nil up, semi final. They're going to go and uh, quarter final. They're going to they're going to go and win this tournament. Wayne Rooney is just the world's best player at that moment in time at the age of eighteen. Unbelievable. And of course, Rooney injured his metatarsal, and on came Darius Vassell. And it was just like uh, air being let out of England's balloon. I think the drop-off was just enormous and, and it, it changed the whole game. And of course, England went out with Darius Vassell missing the penalty in the penalty shootout. And Vassell was the understudy. He'd, he'd come on in every single game in that tournament, either for Rooney or, or Michael Owen. And if ever there was a, a, a sort of moment where squad depth was exposed, I think it was uh, world's best player for Darius Vassell at that point. That kind of makes you realise how fortunate you are now, too. When you look at the, that's those previous squads, you think of all this kind of all this people tearing their hair out about who's going to make the squad. It's just ridiculous now. Vassell getting in this squad, no chance. That just made me think of this summer because if Harry Kane gets injured, with all due respect to whoever is in the squad, 
Dominic Calvert-Lewin, Marcus Rashford, yeah, not, not for me, not for me. So Harry Kane, fingers crossed, bakes it through because we could be sitting in a very, very similar position. Thank you for being with me for the past hour or so. Gregor Robertson, James Restall and Jonathan Northcroft. Uh, remember, if you're enjoying the game podcast, make sure you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app. Let us know what you think. And also get yourself a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times for more of our award-winning journalism on all of your devices. If you sign up today, we will give you one month free. Just go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started. We'll see you on Monday. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.